Well, namaste to all of you. Let us do the commentary for tonight from the Bhagavad Gita. And we are starting this evening with the divine teachings given by Krishna to Arjuna. We are already moving to the chapter number four of this great text. This great text which was commented by many yogis such as Swami Shivananda or Sri Aurobindo. This great text which was admired by all the spiritualists of India because it contains some amazing message. Bhagavad Gita for most of the yogis first of all is the capital text of Indian spirituality defining the circumstances for karma yoga but as you are going to see it's much and as you have seen already in the first three chapters it's much much more than karma yoga actually the chapter number four is generically called the yoga of wisdom which would be a dhyana yoga so again in chapter two krishna gave a sort of radical sudden vision about the self the supreme self the nature of the self the spirituality in chapter number three he started coming to his subject talking about action divine action ritual action as well as karma yoga and detachment from the fruits of action and that is the main theme of what he is doing so he will come back to that again more but somehow in the chapter number four he again starts with some elements of knowledge first of all so he returns a little bit to the metaphysics and as you are going to see he reveals some wonderful aspects of spirituality many yogis draw sentences or teachings from bhagavad-gita and in every chapter i found at least two shlokas which are quoted with admiration by great yogis such as action is superior to inaction in uh, chapter three or yoga is skillfulness in action such things are like mantras they become like motos they become like taglines in the spirituality of yoga and as you are going to see, it continues beautifully as we go through the chapters. So, here we are in full swing of Krishna speaking. In the last, in the end of the third chapter, Arjuna asked, where does the sin come? What makes the human beings do things which are against the Dharma, against the order of the universe, like breaking Yama and Niyama, as we'd say in, in classical yoga? And Krishna gave some explanations about that. And now he directly continues. There is no question of Arjuna here to mark the beginning of the new chapter. Krishna keeps on talking and he passes into what is considered the fourth chapter of this teaching. So it starts by saying in the shloka, in the strophe number one, the blessed Lord said, the blessed Lord, Bhagavan, which is a name which can easily be translated as God, is, of course, an epithet of Krishna, who, you are going to understand more, even in this chapter number four, is considered by the Hindus 
as a divine incarnation, exactly as the Christians consider Jesus a divine incarnation, a being, the divine being incarnated. So the blessed Lord said, I proclaimed this imperishable yoga to Vivashvat. Vivashvat declared it to Manu and Manu told it to Ikshvaku. This is a little bit of like the storytelling. All the storytellers in the shamanic world, they start with the first man or the first woman or with the sun goddess or the sun god that one day did this or did that. That's always the way of starting. Even the Bible, one of the Gospels in the Bible, starts by saying, uh, in the beginning, Adam, uh, when Eve had these children, Abel, Abel and Cain, and then from them they came this and this, and they reached the King David, and then another 20 or 40 dinner generations, and then they reached to Jesus himself. Like, you go back to the roots, you start, where does this teaching come from, says Krishna? Like, this is not something which I made up on the battlefield right now. He says, this is a yoga which I mentioned in the old days to Manu. But here is the oddity, which of course is going to become apparent in a second. Because the laws of Manu, as they are called in Hinduism, in Brahmanism, they must have been written 4,500 years ago. Some people say maybe 5,500 years ago. The, the timing is extremely difficult in those immemorial days. But we know that the laws of Manu are something very, very old. They are one of the foundations of the Vedic culture. But now when Krishna talks to Arjuna, this is happening perhaps 3,500 years ago. So Krishna, if you analyze carefully this, Krishna seems to be a bit batty because Krishna says, I proclaim this imperishable yoga to Vivashvat, who is a half-god, half-human, mythical being. It's like you'd say, I gave this to Prometheus and Prometheus gave it to Manu and Manu told it to Ikshvaku. Wait a second, Manu lived 1,000, 2,000 years before this is happening. But Krishna couldn't have lived a thousand or two thousand years, which simply means, like cutting through the, all the roundabout talk, that basically Krishna says, I did that because I am God. And as God, I talked to various prophets along the time. And if you don't like it in that way, if that sounds too much or too radical, then you can say that Krishna talks about incarnations. I have been incarnated 2,000 years ago in the time when Vivashvat was alive. And exactly as I'm teaching you this, I, in a different body, in a different lifetime, I taught it to Vivashvat. I was the guru of Vivashvat. And Vivashvat was the guru of Manu. And Manu taught it to his disciple. And thus, this became a lineage. Like, suddenly, Krishna zooms back the camera and shows to Arjuna a much bigger picture. <clears throat> Arjuna needs to feel, needs to see that this is not just some opinion of Krishna. It's very easy to look at Krishna and to say Krishna is just a piece of flesh and blood. He's my charioteer. 
he's my friend, I know him, and thus to lose the perspective. You don't realize who is talking to you when Krishna is talking to you. Just say, this dude is telling me some crazy stuff. But Krishna tells him, pay attention. He rings the bell. He starts the fourth chapter very forcefully. He goes back to the origins like a storyteller. And he says, this teaching is coming from the beginning of the universe. I taught this in the beginning of the Bharata, in the beginning of the Indian culture, in the beginning of the dawn of our civilization. I taught this to those people. And thus... The question is immediately, how could you have done this? Then who is Krishna? Even if it's about a different life, why does he remember and other people don't remember? Nobody remembers what they did 2,000 years ago. Krishna does. Krishna says, even at that time I was a divine teacher and I taught this thing to, Vish to Vivasvat. So... Again, the first is a strong start, going to the roots, connecting to the tradition, by, in which he says, I taught this imperishable yoga. What a beautiful epithet. He says, I taught this imperishable yoga. Like this will not perish. This is a science which is immortal. Even if the humanity is nuked, and we get back to cockroaches and ants and it will take another billion years before a new humanity appears, this yoga will still be there. Our descendants will rediscover it at some point in time because this yoga is imperishable. Why is it imperishable? Because it's the truth. What Krishna taught and what Krishna is teaching is the truth. And nobody can destroy the truth. The truth is imperishable. That's why... He uses a very strong epithet. He said, I taught this imperishable yoga. Like this is not a philosophical doctrine that uh, Plato had a philosophy and uh, then Immanuel Kant had a different philosophy. And a million years from now, nobody will know what the philosophy of Plato or what the philosophy of Kant was, probably. But the philosophy of Krishna, even if they don't know about Krishna, will still be there. Because the philosophy of Krishna, Krishna says, it's imperishable. This is the divine truth. It's not just the speculation of a philosopher. That's a very strong start. <clears throat> so, I taught this imperishable yoga to Vivashvat. He, talk, he, talked, he told it, he taught it to Manu. Manu proclaimed it to Ikshvaku. Thus, having, we go to the second verse... Thus, having received it from one another, the royal sages knew it. With a long lapse of time, O scorcher of enemies, this yoga has been lost to the world. The first thing which Krishna tells here is that this teaching was given to royal sages, which is a very rare brand. Royal sages are covering two very important categories in the traditional building of the society because usually people either are aristocratic and royal and then they are not very wise and not very involved in spirituality because they have castles lands administration and all sorts of other obligations even when those noble people were very nice and very right very clean very pure they didn't have much time for going in a monastery 
and praying 10-12 hours per day. This was not their dharma. Their dharma was to take care of the population, to take care of their subjects in a totally different way, in, on a totally different level. So usually if you are royal, this is what in the West were the knights, the chivalry, the aristocracy. This is what in India were called the kshatriyas, the warrior class, the leader class, the royal class. And this is what in uh, Japan were the samurai, the daimyos and the samurai, the feudal lords. In every society, in every traditional society, you have this and it's not invented in one. Like the Japanese structure of the society was not checked first with a Christian one and then validated. They developed independently, relying on some archetypes in the collective subconscious mind, which define the way a traditional society has to be to reflect the divine. Even Shambhala, which is the divine archetype for this planet, has a ruler for the temporal part, Mahanga, and has a ruler for the spiritual part, Mahatma. And uh, while the temporal ones are called knights, kshatriyas, samurai, the one for the spiritual part would be in Europe called monks, and in India they would be called brahmins, priests, monks, and in Japan this would be the Buddhist priesthood, the Buddhist priests. Therefore, for those of you who never heard me lecturing on the lecture about Shambhala, remember that this is the traditional backbone of the society. There are two directions to reach enlightenment and realization. There are two directions to fulfill your Dharma. One is the temporal path in which you have to become a knight and the female equivalent because women who are knights, they were actually dames or ladies. The, this is the female equivalent for it. And in Japan, there were women who were samurai. So this is not something only for men. This division works for men as well as for women. And then there is the path of the knighthood. And then there is the path of the priesthood. Priests do rituals, pray. They are versed into metaphysics and spirituality. And they usually have no temporal power. They don't own castles and judicial systems and authority over material things, except, of course, on some limited things in their little world there. And the aristocrats, the knights, the samurai, they do administrative work, they, make, they observe the laws, they regulate the society, and at the same time they don't do much meditation or rituals or spirituality. Both of them have a path, and in you also, some of you are more made for the monk's path and some of you are more made for the chivalry path, for the knightly path in this world. And they were separate, but actually at the highest level they are one. For example, the leader of Shambhala, Brahmatma, the soul of the world, is both priest and king. He is the king of Shambhala and he is the high priest of Shambhala. Exactly as the Dalai Lama is king and high priest at the same time. And 
It, this is known. David, King David of the Jews, he is a king. He has the power, the army, the military, the authority, but he is one of the prophets. There is in the Bible a book of Psalms, the Psalms of King David. He is one of the great prophets of Judaism. He is king and priest at the same time. Many, many others in many other cultures were like this. Today, the modern civilization based on the culture of the French Revolution, Liberté, Égalité, Fraternité, and all those nonsensical but fake ideals launched by the so-called democracy and upheld by different secret societies, one of the things to destroy the tradition, to break the backbone of any traditional society is to separate the religion from the state. In Tibet, you could not separate the religion from the state because the religion was the state and the state was the religion in the person of King David or Melchizedek or whatever, which one of the great prophets. In Tibet, you could not. In Israel's, in King David's Israel, you could not separate the religion from the state because that's why the state goes and says everybody has the right to drink until they shit themselves completely. But if the king would be King David, or if the king would be the Dalai Lama, then the king would say, no, you cannot drink until you get shit-faced completely. You are not allowed to drink until you do that, because I am the father of this nation, and I simply cannot allow it to happen. Over my dead body, this is going to happen, that everybody drinks until they lose their minds. Today, the adepts of libertarianism or whatever you want to libertarianism or whatever you want to call it they would say ah you can't do that people are free to shit face themselves as much as they want whenever they want not in a divine not if jesus is king if jesus is king then alcohol is not being sold or alcohol is sold under a very moderate and controlled way Precisely so that people who have no willpower and people who are ridden with vices can control themselves as a help instead of giving them a temptation. Take a bucket of booze because it's cheap and you can afford. Yes, it's cheap and you can afford and you destroy your brain, you destroy your liver, you destroy your life and you destroy the people around you as well. Therefore, this principle that religion and Temporal authority are connected is very healthy from a spiritual standpoint and it is completely hated by people who want anarchy. The anarchists, the anarchist type of mentality, they say we don't want the religious people to have the power to tell us things. The best example which would be given today would be the Taliban's or the Iranian government, no? where the religious, the leader of Iran, the true leader of Iran, is not Ahmedajinabad or whatever his name is. That guy is a front. The true leader, everybody knows, is the, the Ayatollah Khamenei, the supreme religious leader of the... He makes the laws and he even gives the approval for the president. If Khamenei says this guy cannot be a president, that guy is not a president anymore. And look, all the Western civilization hates it 
blames it, throws rotten eggs at it, because this is, in its own way, it can be not so pleasant and not so harmonious, and I personally think I wouldn't want to live there, in such a society, but still it represents a connection with a tradition. There is a tradition to it that in the old days, this was so, even Henrik VIII, the king of England, tried to revive this tradition by making himself the spiritual head of the Church of England. Like, forget about the Pope. The spiritual head of the Church of England is the king. Somebody can say the king is an idiot, a sausage eater, a primitive, materialistic, gross type of person, a man of low instincts, a person of like, how can such a person be spiritual leader? And of course, these are the caricatural, painful, ugly ways in which this traditional pattern has been propagated in Kali Yuga. Perhaps the most harmonious of them we would have seen in the Tibetan civilization, where in the person of Dalai Lama you find both and at the same time you don't find too much abuse. However, if you are going to read the literature written by, um, what is his name, not Novovit, the one with um, Roerich, Nicholas Roerich, who wrote, who was a great lover of Tibet and Tibetan culture and he wrote a book about Shambhala and others, Nicholas Royery quotes, there are a couple of chapters in his book where he quotes speaking with Tibetan people and regular Tibetan people, some of them, not all of them, were very pissed off at the great lamas from Potala and at the Dalai Lama himself. They considered them rich aristocrats which were living on the blood and sweat of the masses, a very communistic mentality, but the difference between the standards of living of a farmer and how these people lived in Potala Palace was huge. That means even in Tibet, some people at least, they were not satisfied. They considered the Lamaistic priesthood a sort of aristocracy, profiteering, taking advantage on the masses. That's why I'm saying as we go in Kali Yuga, these traditional models, they become perverted distorted and it's very difficult to see a traditional society. For example, Mahatma Gandhi, who was the soul of India, most Indians loved Mahatma Gandhi. Even there, there were people who hated him. Nobody was universally loved ever in the history of this planet, apparently. From Jesus to Mahatma Gandhi, everybody had their own Judases and traitors and killers and assassins and this. So, but Mahatma Gandhi, who was loved by, let's say, 75% of the Indian population, Mahatma Gandhi never became a politician, and he never became prime minister, he never became the ruler of India. Theoretically, you would say, the man that most Indians love in an almost religious way, like Mahatma Gandhi, should have immediately been made president of India, prime minister, both, whatever, everything, because who would have been wiser, better, more compassionate than Mahatma Gandhi to be the king of India, the king of modern India? That's theory. That's wishful thinking. In practice, these things in Kali Yuga are extremely difficult to implement. 
And that's why we live in a society which is tormented, tortured by lots of egoism and lots of everybody wants first their ego to be satisfied and so on. So it's interesting, I made this long parenthesis because Krishna says, I gave this teaching to royal sages, not to sages, to royal sages, people who are kings and sages at the same time. But this means long, long time ago. This means in a time where the society was still unitary, where wisdom and temporal power were still united. And that is, of course, very relevant because Arjuna, to whom Krishna is speaking here, Arjuna himself is a king, is a prince, if you don't want to make him a king. He is a royal blood. He is a kshatriya. And therefore, Krishna rings a bell for him, tells him this is teaching for royal people like you. But basically what he tells him is, you Arjuna, you are royal, but you are not wise yet. Like unfortunately, we are in a later time of humanity and those people, Manu and Vivasvat, they were wise kings. You are king but you are not wise, and that's why I, Krishna, have to teach you this, because you lost it, you forgot this teaching, it's, you are deeper towards Kali Yuga, Arjuna was not living in Kali Yuga, actually, according to Indian standards, but still, you are further down the drain in the history, and because of this, you are not that wise. So Krishna wants to show him the Karma Yoga, the path of people who have obligations in the society and in the world, and they have to act, but then they have to learn to act with detachment. They have to learn to act with consecration. They have to learn to act with wisdom, because otherwise it's so easy to become selfish, vanitos, arrogant, and all the poisons which come from this. So he presents here a whole lineage of enlightened kings, of spiritual kings or lords. So he says, thus having received it one from another, the royal sages knew it. With the long lapse of time, O scorcher of enemies, this yoga has been lost to the world. Why would it be lost to the world? That's the law of silence. That's the wall of silence about which you learn in the lecture on Svadhyaya in the very first month of these yoga courses. Here, you are warned that there does exist such a force. There exists such a force in the collective subconscious mind. There exists such a karma which erodes, which corrodes the spiritual knowledge and the quality of many, many things like many, many things which could prove something, because suddenly there is a shining, then people don't believe them. No, it's very, and it's very easy to contest them. Like today, if you go on internet and make any search on, let's say, levitation, which means the capacity of a human being to float in midair, most rationalists say, just show us one. Just show us one. Give us one example. We absolutely don't believe it. They say that a human being can levitate. And therefore you can realize that if anybody could bring just one demonstration, it would be turning the tables. 
it would be a revolution. The American Medical Association has it postulated black on white, and there are people who made prison because of this. So it's really serious. Not one, several of the great healers of the 20th century made prison, made time in prison because of what I tell you now, because the American Medical Association has a paragraph which postulates cancer is incurable. And therefore, if ever you go to America and claim I can heal yoga, you go to prison. They, they don't need any demonstration. It's written in the law that cancer is incurable, period. Like you don't even have the right to argue on this. It's a sort of a dogma that cancer is incurable, which is of course completely ridiculous because then it's from the beginning, it's like a mantra which makes impossible any healing. Like there is not even a perspective or a hope because it's declared from the beginning incurable. So is diabetes. So are many other things. They are declared incurable by law, by edict. And thus, if somebody would come with a cure for cancer, obviously in the beginning, and there, were, there are at least 10 major cures for cancer, which have been shown to the world from Royal Raymond Rife to macrobiotic diet and from uh, alkaline dieting to homeopathic remedies. And like the list is crazy. And of course, yoga itself. And yet, the mantra stays, cancer is incurable and therefore if somebody would come and bring it you can be sure that everything in the society first would focus on destroying that individual that individual tells us that the mantras by which we live are not right and we can't have that it's much more simple to put in prison one person like George Oshava or like Wilhelm Reich than to accept that you are wrong for the last 50 years and that's why in the beginning there will be opposition and if by a miracle and only a miracle can make that happen which means the time has come it's the will of God for this breakthrough to happen and then humanity is carried by a, like by a flash flood suddenly everything which stayed quiet for 50 years is swept is swept by a flash flood which wipes out everything and then we go into a brave new world. Then 10 years later, the world is definitely not going to be the same because now everybody knows and does it that cancer is a curable disease. There will be other things which will be considered incurable. There will be other problems of the society. It's not that the society will become perfect or problem free, but there will be a huge change. Such changes happened when we started having mobile telephones. Such changes happened when we started having internet. Some such changes happened when we started having air travel, airplane travel, quick travel from one continent to another, which allows you to be here tonight, and other such things. That's why there are many things which completely change the face of the earth. And those things don't happen chaotically. They happen as they are allowed by a cosmic law. And that cosmic law is about the evolution of the human beings, about the nature of the souls which are incarnated on earth in this time. And that's why, to make the long story short, according to this law of the wall of silence, there is a lot of information which is lost. And even if from time to time it shines, 
then you don't hear about it. Like, I wonder how many of you have seen an incorruptible body that some yogis, Buddhist monks, Christian saints, when they die, their body does not rot. So death is not the same. Some people, when they die, they get eaten by the worms. And some people, when they die, they become religious relics. Their body mummifies in a strange way, and it remains like in a stagnant sleep for hundreds and sometimes even thousands of years. Not many people have seen. They are everywhere. If you take a book about this subject, you will see that you can go in 120 places and see one of those bodies. From Israel to Italy and from Russia to Spain you, and even in Kosamui, you have such bodies. And yet people never see them because there is a wall of silence. Seeing such a thing is increasing your faith. It is demonstrating to you that there is something more than just biological death. It demonstrates that there are some forces which we don't fully understand. And that's why the wall of silence acts on these kinds of things. I was seeing or actually seeing the disc only, the DVD of a movie that I've seen some time ago about the Italian saint who was levitating constantly. He was levitating so much that they had to tie him with a rope during the religious service because he was like a helium balloon. He was just flopping through the church like this and they had to anchor him like a balloon and when they were walking in procession he was floating in midair and somebody was pulling him with a rope. And people say there is no levitation. I have never seen levitation. We never believe that somebody can levitate. That's the wall of silence. The wall of silence makes that things which could revolutionize your mind and which could give you faith and which could make you live in a different type of world, they disappear. Not because somebody is evil and covers up. I'm not talking about conspiracy. I'm talking about a force acting at the level of the collective subconscious mind which simply acts like hushing down. It's exactly like a scar. If you cut yourself, you have a wound. But then the body works and that wound in two months is healed and there is just a very, very light scar which shows that there once was a wound. Sometimes there is no scar at all. Exactly in the way in which the body covers a wound, exactly in the same way the wall of silence covers anything which could change. If there are artifacts which demonstrate that aliens have visited the earth either 4,000 years ago or 40 years ago, those artifacts are hushed down. Not by the American government or a conspiracy cabal. By the wall of silence, by a force which is inherent in the collective subconscious mind and which does not want to produce too big waves. If on this planet people would really believe in alien civilizations, this would first of all trigger a collective hysteria. People get hysterical from nothing. A comet passed the earth 20 years ago, and it was a ridiculous comet. It was the Hale-Bob comet. We don't talk about the Halley comet, which passes really close to the earth. And in 1910, they actually believed that it was going to hit the earth and the whole thing was going to be over. And it created mass hysteria in, in the whole world, in the whole Western world. But we're talking about the Hale. Most of you probably never even heard about the Hale-Bob comet except probably because of this strange event which came together with it. A sect of 
idiots, I cannot call them anything but idiots, in spite of me searching for a better, more polite, politically correct word, a sect of idiots believed that when the Hale-Bob comet will come, their souls will be absorbed by the Hale-Bob comet, and that's the meaning of salvation. And they castrated themselves, and they committed collective suicide in the day of the acme, at the period, at the acme of that comet. How can you, like, people go hysterical just because a comet passes by the earth and then you'll find some hysterical people who will develop a deadly cult or something from it. If there would start now being demonstration of aliens and that there are the little gray men and the tall blonde ones and I don't know how many races of aliens, all the peasants from the countryside would go apeshit because their mind is not prepared for such a thing. And it would be a revolution which would be way, way, way too big for what is happening in the daily life of common people who drown their soap opera in alcohol from morning till evening and who live a miserable life. And that is why there does exist a law of silence. And Krishna mentions it here. He says, even this yoga, like you would say, wow, this yoga was given to... Vivashvat and Vivashvat gave it to Manu and so on. This should have been written. It's like there is a formulation in the Thousand and One Nights which says this story is so wonderful that it should have been written with a needle with a, on the inside of your eyeball, you know, like engraved on the inside of your eyeball, like never lost, always in front of you. It's a story so amazing that it should be permanently in front of your eyes. You want it engraved on your eyeball. No. This yoga, if Krishna taught it 5,000 years ago, it should have been preserved like the treasure of the treasures. It wasn't. And Krishna says very clearly, by a long lapse of time, it has been lost here. It has been lost to the world, in this world. Many things are rediscovered. The explanation of this is that Krishna taught this in Satya Yuga or in Treta Yuga, in a higher Yuga of humanity, and then time passed. And then people became much more debased spiritually. And then they did not deserve to hear that yoga anymore. They didn't have access to it. That yoga was too much, was covered by the wall of silence. It was a very radical spiritual information which would have stopped people from debasing, from decaying spiritually. So then you have two alternatives. Either the yoga of Krishna survives and then the planet doesn't go down because people maintain a certain standard of faith, knowledge and spirituality, or the yoga of Krishna is forgotten and humanity decays, which is actually the case. That is why today we think we are very clever, but actually many, many spiritual things do not exist today. Because according to many yogis, we are close to the end of Kali Yuga and soon we might see the beginning, either in this life or in a matter of 300 years, the beginning of Satya Yuga, the new golden age of humanity. Because of this actually now, they start being unearthed and this internet, computer, digital civilization makes that you just go with a click and find out anything you want to find out. And we are getting to a threshold 
where it is possible to regenerate a lot of spiritual knowledge. Even the way where you are being taught spirituality here, here in Agama, is unique and you will seldom find it. People say, if Swami, who is from Romania, knows so much yoga, then I should go to Rishikesh, I should go to Bihar School of Yoga, I should go to... They should know. Those people are probably even bigger than what these guys are teaching in Agama. How, how big can Agama be? And how good can the quality of these teachings be when they have been Swami Shivanandas and Sri Aurobindos and... Feel free to go and investigate and you will see if you have an open mind, you will come back because the way it is being taught here, it is very special. And it's not because I, Swami Vivekananda, invented anything new. It's because the time has come for some of the old stuff which was kind of lost to be brought to the light because it's a special time of history we live in and some of these things can be used. So many people in India teach Hatha Yoga. 99.9% .9 of them, they don't have a clue of what asanas are and what they do about pranayama and things like this. I know it sounds as a very big-headed statement and it's like it can't be that way. Go and verify. Don't take me on confidence. Go and verify. And you will see there are some things which are coming. Kashmiri Shaivism, of which we have a workshop in a week or so. Kashmiri Shaivism had been lost to the world for almost eight centuries. And today you can study in Agama Vigyana Bhairava Tantra, meditations from their practices, the understanding of Bhavana, the understanding of Shaktopaya and Shivopaya and all those things which were lost, even in India, even in Kashmir, they were lost for eight centuries. And now they come full on and people practice them and people obtain full on results. It's not just a wishful thinking or some sort of intellectual satisfaction. It's the fact that people really transform. That's why I say sometimes, like Krishna says, the initiation, the knowledge, the fire, the light which I brought 2,000 years ago to Vivashvat and Manu has slowly disappeared. It's like fire that went off and is covered by ashes, but there are still a few embers. And now Krishna says, I'm coming 2,000 years later and I'm starting it again. I'm giving a kick to the whole world again. I am shoving the wheel of Dharma once more because you guys are getting slack. The wheel of Dharma slows down like a prayer wheel to which you give a shove and it goes tuk -a -tuk -a -tuk -a -tuk -a -tuk -a and then what do you do? You do it one, you give it one more shove. You have to keep it spinning. And therefore, Krishna says, I'm here to renew it. And people would say, Krishna, but if it was lost, it means it had to be lost. Like people don't deserve it anymore. And Krishna says, I am the light of the world. When they ask Jesus, why do you heal this blind man? This blind man has been blind since he was a child. He never saw the light, so he doesn't know what he's missing. So he's happy. He put up with his blindness. Why do you come and stir him out of his blindness? And Jesus gives that formidable answer which he, in which he says, As long as I am in the world, like in a physical body, alive, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Like, there cannot come a blind man near me without me giving him sight. 
I am like a dynamo. I am like a thunder. I am like electrifying everybody. I am an agent of God and around me everything goes to boiling point automatically. I am the one who stirs things up. That's the mission of every spiritual person in their own way. Of course, some people like Krishna and like Jesus and even like Buddha, they are doing it in a big time. They are doing it for billions of people, for the whole humanity, and their mission is planetary. Some people like Swami Shivananda or others, maybe they have a smaller mission which addresses only to a number of hundreds of thousands, of millions of people who heard about Swami Shivananda. Like people from members of my family, for example, they never heard of the existence of a fellow called Swami Shivananda. They don't know that there existed in India a man called Swami Shivananda and what he did. But about Jesus and Buddha, everybody has heard. That's why every spiritual person has a mission at a certain level. But every spiritual person is like a lighthouse. It's like I'm bringing you the lost knowledge. It's Prometheus, Prometheus, the Titan, bringing the fire to people. And that changed humanity. Well, this thing of Prometheus that brings the fire, it happens with every spiritual teacher, every guru, every spiritual master brings the light again and again and again and again. Why? Because people have a talent to be ignorant and lazy, tamasic, dark, and to lose it. Jesus gives it to them. People go full on for five centuries. Then they start having institutions and they start losing it. Christianity today is not what Christianity was 16 centuries ago. 16 centuries ago, the people who are Christian were doing amazing things. Today, it's an institution plagued by power games, abuses, crusades, inquisition, pedophilia, and all sorts of other crazy stuff, which is not what it used to be. In the beginning, there is a big momentum, and then there is a sort of loosening of the momentum, losing the initial light. That's the wall of the silence. Even the religious knowledge, even the spiritual knowledge is very difficult to preserve alive. And that's why from time to time it is renewed. Because that's exactly what Krishna says. So he says this knowledge handed down thus in regular succession. The royal sages knew this yoga by a long lapse of time has been lost here in this world, O Arjuna. That's exactly the way it happens. The Kriya Yoga of Yogananda was burning in the 1940s and 50s when Yogananda was there alive like a dynamo. Then his first disciple outlived Yogananda a few years. Then the next follower of Yogananda was Sri Daya Mata, an amazing spiritual woman who felt she did not have this masculine yang power. So she was a very reserved, interiorized woman who spent most of her life in meditation. And she didn't go out preaching like Yogananda did. And then after her, you hear less and less. 
who is today the leader of the Self-Realization Fellowship of Yogananda? What is the Self-Realization Fellowship doing? Where is this famous Kriya Yoga coming from Babaji to Lahiri Mahasaya and from Lahiri Mahasaya to Sri? Where is it? The momentum is gone. It's like Paramahamsa Yogananda is like a stone that you cast in the water. The first impact is very violent. There is a big bloop. And then there are ripples. And those ripples become more and more discreet, more and more thin, until you don't see them anymore. Everything, even spiritual revelation, is very intense when there is a spiritual person there that churns the waters, that electrifies people. Ramakrishna, people declare him as being electrified. Ramakrishna was so crazy, he was sleeping two hours per night. It's true, he burned himself out. He died relatively young. And he was a bit of a hysterical madman by psychological definitions. But he was burning. How much India got from Ramakrishna? How much Indian spirituality got? How much Swami Vivekananda of India and the other disciples, how much did they get from Ramakrishna? Until today, they ride on the wave of Ramakrishna. After Ramakrishna and Vivekananda... There is nobody worth mentioning anymore. Like we don't say that today the Ramakrishna Vivekananda mission says, we had Ramakrishna, then we had Vivekananda, who was almost as great but not quite, and then we had Abedananda, and then we had Shivananda. And then, no, it's Ramakrishna, Vivekananda, and then a lot of faces without name. Like, the, the momentum is lost. There is an explosion with Ramakrishna, but it's very difficult to hold it on like this and like this. Sometimes, yes, like Buddha gives his disciples, Ananda and all the others, and then the story of Buddhism contains a few great disciples and saints, and then it starts getting lost until Bodhidharma takes it and brings it to China. Bodhidharma is like Buddha number two. There's another explosion there which shoves the prayer wheel. Once more it's like new momentum comes. Here is a great soul which again stirs up the waters. And then Padmasambhava, Guru Rinpoche, takes it from India to the unknown and savage land of Tibet. And again something starts because Padmasambhava is again, he's Buddha number three. He's like another great Buddha that again stirs up. So it just goes on. When there is grace, suddenly there is a great saint. Like for example, Roman Catholicism, the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church was going pretty low by the year 1000, 1050. It was at a great low. That's when the Pope started becoming terrible people. Some of the Popes, starting with that time, they, they started becoming very selfish, very violent, very manipulative. Not all of them, but some of them were really power, greedy, and so on. And then the Catholic Church produces St. Francis of Assisi. Then the Catholic Church produces St. John of the Cross. And these people saved the day. Until, the, until today, the Catholic Church feeds on the momentum generated by St. Francis of Assisi in the 12th century. We could say, and that sounds a bit blasphemous in a Christian language, 
we could say that Saint Francis of Assisi is a sort of Jesus number two. Like he comes and gives another momentum and people who'd lost their faith and who were becoming so materialistic, the Italian cities were carrying, were waging war constantly just to, just to rob each other for money. They were just fighting with each other just to take each other prisoner and ask for ransom and break into the safe houses and steal gold and silver and cloth. And it was monstrous, monstrous. That's Italy in the medieval times, you know, people who were ultra-Catholic and ultra-fanatical Christian, and yet they were behaving like terrible creatures. And at that time, Francis of Assisi comes and says, let's live as Jesus says. Let's literally live the way Jesus says, like the birds of the sky. And they hate him, and they beat him up, and they torture him, and they complain about him, and they nag him, and they even killed one of his disciples. In Catholic Italy, a Christian saint is being persecuted. Why? Because he is Prometheus. He is like Prometheus. He brings some more light. The wheel, the prayer wheel of Christianity was slowing down. And then you get a Francis of Assisi and he saves the day for a few centuries. Then you get a Saint Teresa of Avila and she also shoves the wheel a little bit. In the 20th century, it almost is dead. And then you get a Padre Pio, who again, at least in Italy and in the Mediterranean countries, shoves the wheel a little bit and gives a little bit more of faith and patience in hope to the spiritual people in that. No, the grace is less and less, more and more seldom, less and less spectacular. We don't have Jesus's walking on water and raising the dead then it would be easy. But that was a moment of grace. Jesus didn't do that because he felt like doing that. He says it very clearly. He says, I came here to do what my Father in heaven sent me to do. Like, I'm not raising dead because I can. I'm raising dead people because God told me do it three times and no more. Go and do that three times show to people that it's possible, they will get a shove, they will get a burst of light and of faith, and it will keep them for the next 2,000 years, more or less. It will it nevertheless produce that. That's why the human history is not linear. There are moments where people like Rumi, no, the Islamic culture starts, and as soon as Muhammad, the prophet, passes away, it gets bad. His follower gets killed. His follower gets killed. Six or seven members of the family of the Prophet who become the first Imams or whatever you'd call them of the Islamic religion, they get assassinated. It's a culture of assassination because of jealousy, because of not liking some things. So Islam starts going down. You know, it becomes quickly a war-oriented society. Conquest, it conquers all the Middle East. It conquers Egypt, North Africa. It goes all the way to Spain. And then something marvelous happens. Rumi is born. Mevlana Rumi, Jalaluddin Rumi is born. Like this is, and again it would sound a blasphemy in any Islamic environment, this is Muhammad number two. It's another impulse which says, in spite of all the mistakes and in spite of all the decadence, 
Some regeneration is possible. The grace is still there. Look, there is one person with a great heart who is bringing the light again so that there should be again some faith, so that there should be again some light. This is the way it goes in the human society. The, tru the truth gets buried very easily. The light gets buried very easily. That's why <clears throat> even Jesus quotes of what they did to him, what they were going to do to him. He quotes a verse from the prophets, from the Jewish prophets, who knew this very well. He, and that verse is, I shall strike the shepherd and the sheep are going to get scattered. The sheep can be kept orderly only because there is a shepherd. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will get lost. The sheep don't have the power to say, oh, our shepherd has been killed. Let's make a council, let's make a committee and let's stick together. The sheep are so blinded by their confusion that they can't do it. That's why a spiritual person has a role. Some of you will be spiritual persons and spiritual guides in your life. And that's your role. You have to be like Prometheus. You have to bring the light because people without such a person, <coughs> they don't do it. People know. They say, Swami, when we come to Kopangan, it's like a soap bubble. We do yoga. We do meditation. We practice love. We practice selfish, selflessness and so on. Then when we get out, in a matter of weeks, days, months, we lose it. Suddenly we don't practice. Suddenly we don't. We get buried by the worries of the world. Where do you think that comes from? That comes from exactly the people that have the aspiration and the spirituality and that generates this thing. That's why a spiritual person is necessary. A shepherd is necessary. Without the shepherd, the sheep get lost. Because the sheep don't have enough power to keep the flame alive. They don't have enough lucidity to stay strong on their thing. And to say, I took a vow today that for the rest of my life I'm going to meditate and pray and do nothing except death can stop this. Only death will stop me from doing this. I commit myself today to be a spiritual seeker for the rest of my life. That is the turning point. That's the moment when you stop being a sheep. When you start having that momentum and you know, even if they throw me in hell, I'm still going to do this. I'm still going to be this. This is who I am. This is what I am. That is why, remember, this is a constant of the human world that spirituality gets lost. And it gets lost because people have no light inside them. People are like the moon, not like the sun. The sun is the only source of light in this solar system. All the other planets and satellites which you see, they only reflect the light of the sun. Ramakrishna is the sun. All the Ramakrishna movement is all of them satellites and planets. It's not their light. It's the light of Ramakrishna that they reflect. Thus, it is important always to understand that either you become a light unto yourself, or if not, you will have to stay near somebody who has light until you will catch that light, until you will catch fire. That is why it is accepted in spirituality.
to live near a guru for a while, for 12 years in India or something, so that you can catch the light from somebody. Because alone, only if you are Krishna, then you will have light. Because you are an avatar and you are born for a mission. But otherwise, that light, you don't have it. And as soon as the shepherd is hit, the sheep are lost. The sheep are lost always without the shepherd. And Krishna then continues by telling him a very beautiful thing which links them in a human way. He says, this same age-old yoga, like it's age-old, people say, we want something new. People say, yoga, yoga, it's boring. Let's do something else. This is how the new age culture is. Every week, some Svadhisthanistic monkey invents some new crazy stuff. It's like, why should you be satisfied with Christianity and Buddhism and Hinduism and yoga and Sufism and Tantra and this, when you can invent something new? It doesn't matter that that new thing is crap, which it usually is, because it takes a spiritual genius that has a special blessing and warrant from God to create something new, which is valid. Most people who create ascended masters and uh, rotating merkabas and things like this, it's all crap. It's all new age crap and it happens mostly in the 50 years. At least in Christianity and in Islam, the saints knew this and that's why there was a sort of theological dogmatic control. Like if you came in the 16th century and started talking about, uh, I don't know, one of these new age things, they would have burned you at stake. Because you are one of the crazy damaged goods who is going to disturb the minds of the whole society. You are one of the Svadhisthanistic wishful thinking hysterics who is coming up with rotating merkabas instead of praying to Jesus. And people, some people are going to get confused by you. Of course the modern democratic people would say, let them speak. Let everybody speak. Those religious authorities said, no, when you speak rubbish, you should be silenced. You should not be allowed to speak. No? If we can speak that, we can speak everything. No? Let's allow and speak all the most politically incorrect things. You know, even in the modern society, which pretends itself to be democratic, there are some things which if you say, in most of the countries, they put you to prison. You get huge trouble. No? Such as, let's take a politically incorrect one, denial of the Holocaust. In most countries in Europe and North America, if you deny the Jewish Holocaust in the Second World War, you go to prison. I, for one, during this lecture, I'm not asking the issue if that's right or not, but I'm simply saying, is that freedom? Like, you are not allowed to say really everything. There are some things which are blacklisted, and if you do them, you go to prison. So even today, we have the Inquisition still going. It's not about Jesus because it's not a religious society. It's taken over by the politicians and the financial people. And they have other things which they are keeping off limits. Today, you can say that Jesus was a schizophrenic. There was a Russian writer, I don't know if Bulgakov or which, who even wrote, you know, wrote a whole theater play in which Jesus appears as a schizophrenic. 400 years ago, he would have been nailed to the wall for that. Today you can say it, but today you cannot say other things. 
There are other things which are off the limit. So it's not that the history changes. It's only the subject changes. The power structures are the same. There still is no freedom, while apparently there is some more freedom. It's just that some of the old things have been replaced with other new things. And that's why he, Krishna here says, this same age-old yoga. Like there is, it's the same. There is no invention in spirituality. Even Jesus, he said, I'm not telling you anything new. What I'm telling you has been told already by the prophets and by the great spirits. Like Jesus is not a new age person who comes and says, oh, the Jews are bored. Let me come up with something exciting. Spirituality is not about doing something exciting. That's exactly the people are constantly looking for excitement. And then they come two years to Kopangan and they do yoga. And suddenly they go surfing in Australia. Because suddenly they got bored. Like even yoga gets boring. Ask pupils who have been in this school for two, three, four seasons. And you will see that the monkey mind always acts. The monkey mind makes you lose. Like in the beginning, we have pupils who come to yoga. And after the first month of yoga, they come to me and they say, Swami, I paid the yoga courses until the 14th month. I'm going to make a hut here and live here. If I make my house here, I finally found what I was looking for. Do you, where do you think those people are one year later? I don't see them. They fade away because these are people who are having a strong beginning. They get very enthusiastic by something. And then two years later, they are nowhere because they got bored. And this is the problem. You cannot get bored of God. You cannot get bored of your own spirit. You cannot get bored of spirituality. This is something which is lifelong. And it's something which you do for hundreds of lives. And therefore, spirituality is something which has to go beyond boredom. I am a very little trust. I'm very skeptical when people come and say, Swami, I found my home. This is my place. And people think I'm cynical. I am thin cynical. Because when people come with effusions like this, I'm saying, right, mm, yeah, sure, yeah, welcome, welcome to... Like, I'm giving them a very tame answer. I'm not whipping it up. If I would be a manipulator, I would say, yes, give me a hug, give me some sugar. Welcome, dear one. I've been waiting you for 20 years. You know, it's like I knew you would show up. This is what you do. But this is a lie. The thing is that the monkey mind, you discover something and you say, all my life I looked for this. And many of you who are beginners are in this stage. No? And people did the whatever. Somebody comes with Hridaya meditation. Somebody comes with a workshop on astrology. Somebody comes with this. And people go, ah! Let me see them 10 years later. I bet 90% of them won't be there 10 years later. I've been in yoga for 30 years. I've seen people going like, all my life is in this. I'm going to die for this. And 10 years, not 10 years, 3 years later, they were surfing in Australia. They were doing something else. This is the monkey mind, unfortunately. There is a part in us which is aspiration, longing, genuine aspiration. And then there is the monkey mind. And the problem for everybody is what do you do? What will you do when you'll get bored of yoga? 
Like there are people who now they say, if I ever get bored of yoga, I'm going to commit suicide. It's like I can't conceive it. It would be like betraying my own soul. It would be like, you know, it's inconceivable. But believe me, the monkey mind does play that game. That's why the real spiritualists are the people who don't do things because of enthusiasm or boredom. You have to be able to have aspiration even when it's dull. Even when spiritual practice can, from the standpoint of the mind, sometimes sound boring and dull. But you have to be able to do spirituality even then. Because it's not about excitement of the mind. Oh, let's tickle the mind with some new fresh thing and get it excited. No, it's not about that. That's why there are even spiritualities where they do just one technique. You go in a Christian Hesychast monastery, there's the prayer of the heart. That's all the yoga which you learn. The prayer of the heart from morning till evening for the next 30 years. That's all. You don't need to excite yourself with, oh, next week we are learning Paschimottanasana. And next month we are learning Samavriti Pranayama. And this, this is the monkey mind. It's useful, of course, because it keeps you in the loop. But it won't keep you forever. You will practice 12 years of yoga. And then after 12 years of yoga, your monkey mind will say, now I think there is no more to learn. No? We have people who simply come and say, we think we cannot learn anything more from Agama. We'll go away. But Agama is not here just for teaching you things. It's about spirituality. It's about the spiritual practice. It's about going deeper. Agama is a school. And at the same time, Agama is a community of seekers, of people who are united through their aspiration and through their desire to go deeper and finding the spiritual resources and truths inside them. And that's why there is no new yoga. It's the same age-old yoga. How boring. That's the way it is. We cannot keep you excited with novelties all the time. That's only the monkey mind which requires exciting novelties. Spirituality is when you can do one and the same thing for 10 years, for 20 years, for 30 years. That's indeed when you have spirituality. It's very easy to get excited about yoga when you did the first month of yoga. Because then there are so many new things that your mental monkey is having an orgasm. Oh, so many new things I have learned. Then you have to sit and practice them for 30 years. That's where it goes. So, this same age-old yoga, which is indeed the supreme secret, like Krishna says, I'm telling you the secret, what life is made of, what the human being is. Krishna being a divine incarnation. And he says, that same ancient yoga, uh, this same age-old yoga, which is indeed the supreme secret, I have today declared to you, because you are my devotee and friend. Krishna says, the yoga which I taught 2,000 years ago to Vivasvat and to Manu, today I'm teaching it to you. I, it's the same. I'm not teaching you something new. It's only new for you today because you hear it for the first time. But there's nothing new. And he says, the same age-old yoga, I'm teaching it today to you because you are my devotee and friend. Like Krishna says, if you wouldn't be my devotee and you wouldn't be my friend, I wouldn't teach it to you. 
like Krishna says the same. I'm not teaching yoga to everybody. Like that's not the way spiritual information is given. Even here, this is a satsang which is open to everybody. People from all the levels of study and even people who are not attending the Agama courses. But this is not all the teaching of yoga. You come through the courses, you are getting more teaching of yoga. You get to the levels of Kundalini, you get even more intimate teaching of yoga. You go to the level of your chakra tapas and you get to the level of the advanced teachings, you are getting even more advanced teaching of yoga. Because Krishna says it very clearly, I teach this to you because you are my devotee and friend. That's who your teacher is. Your teacher is your... If you don't become friends with your teacher, is your teacher supposed to sell you yoga? Any one of you thinks we are selling yoga? We would go in a place where you can sell it ten times more expensive. Especially a yoga like this. There are people who give initiations in yoga for tens of thousands of dollars and so on. And they give things which are not even 10% of what we give here. We wanted to make yoga as a business. It wouldn't be in Kopangan. So yoga is not being sold. We are doing yoga, of course, it does require your financial contribution because you are dealing with your own karmic blockages because things have to work in the physical world like to build a hall like this takes some resources and that's just the law of the world in which we live but it's not selling because if i can teach you Udhyana Banda and Udhyana Banda can heal your stomach cancer and can take you out of being a confused jellyfish for the last 20 years, and now you are going to become more vertical and straight, then pray, tell me, how much money should I charge for teaching you Udhyana Banda? If it can do that, heal your cancer, and get you out of confusion for the rest of your life. There is no money in this world that can buy Udhyana Banda. It's worth way, way more than anything which you earn in your life because without Udhyana Banda, your life would have been a mess and you would have died in an agonizing death. Therefore, yoga is not being sold. This is not illustrating a price for yoga. What you are doing here is that with, with your teachers, and there's, of course, it's a more complex thing, we are becoming friends. You are getting closer to me, we are becoming friends, and I'm transmitting to you this knowledge more and more as years pass for you and for me, because I can see that we are friends and because I can see that you are devoted. If you are not devoted and we are not friends, I'm not going to teach yoga for money. I'm not interested. That's not the way it happens. Therefore, realize that Krishna here tells a very important yoga and spirituality. It's a human thing. It's a humane thing also. This is not a business. It's something which involves love, connection. There is a love. There is a history of love. The 12 men who became the apostles of Jesus, they were his companions. They were his friends. He loved every one of them. And 
he gave them his love and he gave, gave himself for them. The disciples of Swami Shivananda loved Swami Shivananda and they were his friends. The disciples of Ramakrishna loved Ramakrishna and they were his friends. The disciples of Rumi or the disciples of whoever, you can take any example. This is the only way in which the transmission is done. Yoga is not a soulless thing where we just meet for conferences. That's the shell. That's the outer shell. Because that's where I get to connect with you. I connect with you, first of all, showing my face in satsangs. Some of you see me once a week in satsangs. That's how our story starts together. But this is a story with each and every one of you. Either we are connected from previous lives, and that's why you came back to me in Kopangan in this year, because we have a karma together, and the teaching continues. Or, if we haven't met before, and this is just the beginning, because there is always a beginning, and everything has a beginning, then this is the start of a long story. You and I, we are building something. And what is being built between you and I, it is a story of love. If it's not a story of love, then there is no spiritual transmission. Because yoga is not something which we sell. This is not a business. It's not like in school, you can learn mathematics from a teacher and not love your teacher. In yoga, you can hardly learn yoga from somebody to whom you do not feel some devotion and friendship. Krishna says, I teach you this yoga, I, I dig it out of the, of the dust because you are my devotee and friend. Like here is my devotee and friend who is in trouble. So what am I going to do? I'm going to get back that yoga, that priceless yoga, that age-old yoga, which is the supreme secret, and I'm going to give it to my good friend Arjuna because Arjuna desperately needs it. And here it is, Arjuna, my gift from my heart. This is my wisdom for you to help you sort out the situation in which you are. That's what yoga really is. That's what spirituality really is. Like Buddha was trying to find the answer to suffering, to ignorance, to death, to old age, to the things which plague humanity. And that's an act of compassion. It's an act of love. I give it to you. I give you these answers because you need them. That's exactly how it goes in yoga. You may be tempted because Agama is run to a large extent like an institution, like a Western institution. We have management, we have rules, there is a registration office. There are, it's impossible to run things in the modern 21st century world without creating some structure. It would become chaotic. I remember when I was in Kumbamela in 98 in Haridwar, everybody was making fun of the rainbow community. Some of the Indians there, they took pity on the rainbow hippies and they gave them a piece of land and they said, okay, you the rainbow people, you can also have a plot there during the Kumbamela to organize. And two months had passed, the Kumbamela was almost over. And the hippies from the Rainbow Organization, they, were, they hadn't been unable to decide yet where the toilet should be. And as a result, everybody was crapping all over that plot of land. There were shits and turds everywhere because these people were smoking hash every day and they were democratic. 
And that one said, I think the toilet should be in the back. And another one said that I think the toilet should be in the front. And they haven't, so of course, if we'd run a gamma like this, the whole thing would be a toilet. We wouldn't be able to run it. But this can delude you to the fact that Agama is an institution or a school. That's not the way I feel it. That's not the way Sahajananda feels it. That's not the way the spiritual teachers in this school feel it. Because this is a history of love. It's a transmission which comes together with friendship. That's why it is very painful for us to see when people gossip, get angry, become unfriendly. You know, it's like, what are you? I, I don't want to teach yoga. There is no meaning for me to teach yoga to a person with whom we don't have friendship. For I'm like, then what am I doing? Therefore, realize that Krishna here tells a very important thing. He simply says, I give this to you only because you are devoted to me and you are my friend. That's the only thing which is needed. Nothing else is needed. All the other parifernalia that some money are needed and so on, those are completely secondary. What is needed is devotion and love. Without that, spiritual transmission will not work. That same, so again, in the shloka number three, I will take probably one more and then stop. Krishna says, that same ancient yoga from 2,000 years ago from Vivasvat and Manu has been taught today to thee by me. For thou art my devotee and friend. It is the supreme secret. So Krishna is very clear about the fact that he is giving something which is priceless. What should Arjuna pay for Krishna taking him out of the shit? Krishna, Arjuna is in a total existential hole. He is in a total pit of darkness. And Krishna stops the chariot and says, listen, Arjuna. And teaches him and takes him out to see the light. Has that got any cost? Can you pay, can you pay the baptism of Jesus, that you are baptized in the name of Jesus and by being baptized in Jesus... You are getting, those of you who are Christian, of course, how much money does that cost? What are you willing to give to Jesus because you are baptized in his name? That has no price. Even all the money of all the billionaires of this planet pulled together will not cover the cost for one person. This is the spiritual truth. And thus, it is important to meditate. And Krishna Arjuna, of course, reacts as being semi-ignorant yet. And thus Arjuna retorts. Now he prepares with a new question. And he says, Later was thy birth, and earlier the birth of Vivashvat. Like you are born in two different millennia. You and Vivashvat. Like, are you raving? Are you a lunatic? Mr. Krishna, friend Krishna, are my, my good friend Krishna, are you crazy? Like you say that you taught this to Viv... He was born 2,000 years ago. What the heck are you talking about? How am I to understand this saying that you did proclaim it in the beginning? So Krishna is asking a logical question which everybody would ask. Like it makes no sense. You are mixing up things and maybe you smoked something or something because you seem to be delirious. So again, later on was thy birth and prior to it was the birth of Vivashvat. 
Vivashvat is actually a demi, a semi-divine being. It's, it's meaning the sun, it's the solar dynasty of India and everything. So it's like the incarnation of the sun, exactly as the emperor of Japan is the direct descendant of Amaterasu, the sun goddess. Like in the beginning of Manu and all those was the sun god incarnated on earth. How, and this is like mythological, thousands of years old, how am I to understand that you did teach this yoga in the beginning? Like you were not living in the beginning as far as I remember. Logical question, which of course you all realize that. And to conclude with the answer, because the answer is the teaching, then the blessed Lord Krishna said, Many births have passed for me and for you also, O Arjuna. I know them all, but you know them not, O scorcher of enemies. Like Krishna bluntly tells him, you are ignorant. You don't realize what I'm saying because you are blind. Each, both I and you, it's not the first time that we are on earth. Many birds have had both you and I. The difference being, says Krishna, that I know them all, I remember them all. Krishna doesn't say I remember some of them. Krishna says I remember them all, which is the landmark of the ultimate enlightenment. Buddha, under the Bodhi tree, the last thing which he did before reaching full enlightenment was he remembered his 10,000 previous lives on this planet, his 10,000 lives through samsara. That means he, Buddha could also say, I remember them all. I know them all. Not I had glimpses from a previous life. That's good. It's better than not knowing anything. But Krishna says, I know them all. And you know them not. Which means not at all. Except what you remember from this life, you don't know anything. And thus, here he explains, of course, the mystery. Like there's not so much mystery. I did this in a previous lifetime. I guess, technicalities. So, I did this in a previous time, which I remember and I have control over it. Many births of mine have passed, as well as of thine, O Arjuna. I know them all, but you know them not. This, with this, we will conclude for tonight. It has been enough. Thus, Krishna starts abruptly he told to Arjuna some big things like this is indestructible yoga, this is God's truth, this is immemorial, this is age old, this comes from the beginning of the beginnings. It's right there like Manu and Vivashvat knew these things and this is the root of everything which we do and we know here in this civilization, in this spirituality. And he says it's simply because my knowledge stretches over eons while you are ignorant and you don't know where that comes from. As you are going to see further on, Krishna continues strongly on this. Like first of all, he has to show to Arjuna that this is not just some momentary invention. He has to show to Arjuna that this is the teaching from the beginnings. And like he's telling him, I'm not bullshitting you. I am telling you something which is the tradition and only you don't know because you are ignorant. This has always been there. With this, let us remain for a couple of minutes in silence. 
allowing the message of Krishna to sink in, to imbibe our subconscious mind, our mind, our being. And after a couple of minutes of silence and meditation, let's just, we will stop for tonight. And that will do. With this we have finished for tonight. Namaste to all of you. And see you in the future satsangs. <laughs>